welcome to The Progression Puzzle, the podcast that provides you with invaluable pieces of career wisdom brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. I'm your host, Michael Barrington Hibbert, and across the podcast, I'll be speaking to a variety of esteemed leaders, thinkers, and inspiring figures from the world of finance, banking, professional services, and beyond to understand how their progression puzzles have pieced together. From words of wisdom to pointers on progression, we'll be equipping you with the skills, practices, and learnings necessary, not only to navigate corporate environments, but to thrive within them and ultimately pursue your professional goals. My guest today is Lindy Nguenya, founder of Sisu Sport Management. Sisu is an FA licensed football agency which focuses on mentoring and managing talent from less supported areas of the game, including African football, smaller European leagues, and women's football. Lindy, who founded a company in 2013, has negotiated various commercial and playing contracts and under her leadership, it has become a powerful advocate for gender equality and women's rights. She's a former British Army officer, a professional rugby player, and has over a decade of fixed income trading experience under her belt. Lindy will be telling us about her role at SISU, her journey from city to sports, excelling and exceeding in a male-dominated environment, and much, much more. Hello and welcome, Lindy. Welcome to The Progression Puzzle. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Michael. Really good to um, have a chance to speak with you guys. Well, look, there, there's so much to cover. Um, and I'm, I'm really keen to sort of start off and for you to tell our listeners and viewers today, tell me a little bit about Sisu in your own words. What is your core mission and what is your role within the organisation? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Sisu, as you mentioned, we're, we're a sports management company focused in the football industry. Um, the mission from the outset was always to give a platform to elevate the talent from underserved areas of football. So I'm the managing director. I founded the agency back in 2013. And, you know, the, the football industry, particularly here in England, has been relatively kind of mature and advanced for a number of years. I, I wanted to have a look really at the landscape at the time and see where I could actually make an impact rather than just, you know, being a generic agent trying to sign kind of young boys out of the academies and, you know, manage their careers. And for me, as a kind of a, an ex-player, not a football, but rugby, I, I knew there was definitely a gap with regards to women's sport and women's football in particular around the support and the player kind of management on that side. So women's football from the outset was an area that we we always going to focus on. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, my family heritage is African. And again, you know, if you look at Africa as a continent, there's so much talent and there's so much untapped talent and underserved talent there. So that became a second pillar for the organisation. But like anyone who, you know, you have to have a business model. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the sort of the markets that really drive the game are the European markets. So working with women and African players, I really had to sort of focus on markets that I could take that talent to. And Northern Europe, in particular Scandinavia, uh, really sort of stood out as a good market for me. And that was also helped by the fact that my elder brother lived and worked in Sweden. Um, he's lived and worked in Sweden for now for about 25 years. And uh, it was a good sort of staging post to start the business. So, yeah, we, um, you know, from the outset, our mission has been sort of working on underserved you know, unsupported talents. As the game, particularly the women's game, has evolved over the last sort of few years, you know, some of those talents are really actually coming to the fore. And, you know, the, the platform for women's football in particular has really, really increased massively. And, and that's, you know, that's been really beneficial and heartening really for my business and uh, means that we've also been able to sort of take on more higher profile players as well as a result of that. But I'm really keen to um, probe a little bit more, certainly from a women's football standpoint, because you and I have spoken about this previously in terms of 2013, a lot of the um, teams in England were established, but weren't necessarily paying high wages. So again, you decided to focus on the Scandi region, which was maybe more advanced. 
to some of our viewers, Sweden, Denmark, from a women's football standpoint, have always been competitive. They've, they've been and competed with the likes of America and the World Cups. They've always done exceptionally well. But talk to me about the English game, because we've seen the contract that the Premiership clubs have signed with Sky. We've seen some big contracts for players. But talk to me about when you first started, because we talk about market drivers. There was a market in Scandinavia, but was there a market in England? Um, the, the market in England was very, very nascent when I started in 2013. So the WSL, which obviously now you just mentioned, you're starting to see some big commercial broadcasting deals come into that started in 2011. So you were talking about two years in there into that league where the teams were were not professional. You had one team in Arsenal who've always been trailblazers in women's football. But really, you were talking about, you know, sort of amateur, semi-professional outfits in the WSL. So it's only really been, I would say, in the last five years that that real acceleration of professionalism happened in the English game. And the, the big catalyst was the FA actually kind of stating their intent that the WSL at least would be a professional league. And there was a few growing pains around that. There was a few kind of well-known women's football brands, per se, like Doncaster Bells, who I think were casualties. Uh, they had to make way for Man City to enter the women's game. Um, but I think if we look at it kind of in the round, it, you know, that was a big catalyst and a big trigger for really seeing the growth of the game here in England. And if you kind of compare it to... I guess how men's football evolved. I mean, I'm showing my age here a little bit, but like back in 1980, 81, Nottingham Forest played Malmö in the European Cup final, right? And Malmö were a huge team in Europe. And the, what the Swedes and the, and the Scandinavian region have always done very well is they've always had a big emphasis on participation. They develop a lot of young talent, but there's never been a whole amount of sort of financial investment into that game. Like, so they've always had a good talent base. So as European football had more money come into it, like the Premier League, all the other big European leagues came in, that's when the team started to overtake the, the Malmers of the world, the Copenhagens of the world. And you haven't really seen those teams from the Scandinavian region dominate the men's game in the same way. And I think that's what's going to happen. You know, I'm not saying it's good or a bad thing, but I think that's gradually what you're seeing happening as well in the women's game. So you've had the Scandinavian leagues who, that will always be a good good leagues and have that strength because of their core. But now with the money coming in, the European leagues like England, like France, etc., you'll see the teams from there really dominate. And it, it's it's similar to what you see in South America in terms of Brazil, Argentina, where where young players get signed by the bigger clubs, get loaned back. And, and potentially it looks as though that Denmark and Scandinavia are going to be incubators to the more powerful leagues like the ones in France, in England. That's fascinating. I really want to talk a little bit more about your, your role because outside looking in, um, I've seen you on Sky Sports. I've seen you on social media. You know, you're high profile. But again, I'm really keen to understand what does the managing director of a leading sports management company do on a day-to-day basis? I'm sure it's evolved over the last nine years. I can't believe it's been nine years from you signing up agents. Can you, can you give my listeners a little bit of a, a sense of what a day-to-day looks like for you? Yeah, I mean, I mean the day-to-day life, I think, is similar to anyone who's in a sort of a leadership role where, you know, you're having to deal with, stuff that comes over your lap, you know, unexpectedly. You're having to kind of keep sort of an eye on overall strategy and work through things like that. You need to have some sort of thinking time as well to be able to work through various ideas, proposals and other bits and pieces. So my days kind of evolved as I've realised what makes me most effective. So now I I wake up pretty early in the morning. I mean, it's kind of like a five o'clock up with the sparrows, so to speak, <laughs> alarm call. And I find that time <laughs> between half five and half seven is kind of like quiet time. That really is the only time in the day where I pretty much can guarantee that I'm not going to get a call, I'm not going to get, you know, like WhatsApp or anything like that that's going to kind of stop my train of thought. So that's when I do things like, you know, whether it's reading up on stuff, whether it's working through proposals, whether it's putting some deep thinking time, That's that's the time. Then there's the sort of hour of mayhem, as I already alluded to before our podcast, that involves getting my daughter ready and doing some family family time. And then from about 8.30, 9 o'clock onwards, 
you get into the day-to-day. So for me, a lot of that is around about sort of relationship management. So that's talking to clubs, whether that's be talking to players, players particularly obviously on our own client list, but also maybe players who've been kind of brought to my attention through various kind of avenues, whether it be scouts or whether it be other partners. And there's a lot of time as well looking at doing business development work. So a lot of people obviously approach me for kind of proposals to take to myself as the agency or to my clients. So there's a lot of meetings and other bits and pieces, as well as the general things about trying to get deals done. So I wouldn't like to sort of frame a typical day, but I think that sort of that early quiet time going into the sort of relationship management and then sort of deals and execution, that was probably be the sort of overall structure of it. Okay. Talk to me about resilience. Um, and for for some of our listeners, um, Lindy is a is a black woman in a predominantly white male dominated industry. I'm keen because sport is typically seen as a very male dominated business. And, and of course, sports management is one of those. I would love you to walk me and the listeners through how have you navigated this in terms of visibility, perceptions and, and more? Yeah, I mean, that's um, that's quite a big one to um, bite off and uh, digest. But let me let me let me try to break it down. You know, I'll be honest, I you know grew up when I was a young girl. I would be what would be typically called a tomboy, you know, in the sense that, you know, when I was 9, 10, 11, I, I wanted to watch sport. I loved football. I loved any sport, really, tennis. Some of my earliest impressions, you know, when I was younger were around sports events. I don't know, I remember back in the 80s, you had the West Indies cricket team who came to England and won the Test Series 5-0. You had the Blackwash. So um, that's nothing really for my early years. So... You know, I think because I was so into sport, it almost kind of naturally pulled me into male spaces. You know, even at a young age, wanted to go and watch football matches. You know, you went to you went to football matches back in those days. There wasn't that many girls. There wasn't that many women. Uh, and I think it almost inoculated me a little bit about being in male spaces. So if I look back, because this is, I guess this is me from this perspective now looking back. So, you know, when I was a young girl, I think one of the first things that I guess really shattered that sort of idyllic childhood time was my my father dying at quite a young age. So um, he died when I was nine. And, you know, he was obviously very influential, very sort of strong character. And what I saw was obviously my mum struggling a lot because, you know, she suddenly had to bring up the family on her own, you know, the financial implications of that, the emotional implications of that. And I remember looking at that and thinking, right, I don't want to be in a situation where my well-being is reliant on the existence of someone else. That was one of the very first light bulbs I had, right? So from the beginning, that almost kind of took me away from that thought process of I want to, you know, find a nice husband, settle down, have a, you know, have a nice family life. I almost thought from that point, I was always thinking, right, I need to get on in the world um, off my own efforts because you never know what's going to happen. And that really was the sort of, that's always been the first sort of springboard. So when you talk about resilience, it, it for me, it has always been about, right, you know, I need to survive and I need to progress by my own efforts and not be reliant on outside forces or susceptible to outside forces. And, and thank you for, for, for sharing. And again, it's, it's something that I've, I've known in terms of your background and thank you for sharing this with, with the, the listeners. So that, that's greatly appreciated. And, and, and I think this, this foundation, this self-governance in many respects, this discipline that you've had from a nine, 10 year old has really put you in good stead because you went to Westminster School, which um, to our viewers and listeners who may not know this, is one of the top schools in the country. Talk to me about that. Coming, you know, being in Northwest London, going to one of the most elite schools in the country. Talk to me about how you dealt with that, and then how you transitioned to Cambridge University. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess sort of leading on from what I said about what right, I decided that I was going to stand on my own two feet. So when I was 11, uh, you know, I was, my mum basically started off as a nurse. She became a health visitor. You know, there's not, there's not sort of 
financial means per se um, in the family that way. But by the time I was sort of getting to secondary school age, it was becoming pretty clear that I was academically, at least, I was doing well. I was quite smart. I did quite well in my kind of verbal reasoning, the usual stuff. So, um, you know, at 11 years old, you know, the choices were kind of the normal comprehensive school choices. Um, the local comp from where we lived was um, a school called Quinton Keniston. And I don't want to like besmirch the name, but long and short of it is that's that's the same school that um, Jihadi John came from. So uh, basically, my mum was like really, really kind of concerned about maybe some of the school options that I had at secondary school. And one of her work friends suggested that if I was academically clever, that I should try an entrance exam for private school because at the time they were doing things called assisted places and scholarships where they'd pay for private education for you. They'd fund your education. So I did a entrance exam for a school called Queen's College on Harley Street. I'd literally, that was probably, there was no preparation for it. I literally just sat there, did two papers, one in English, a mathematical paper was the second one. And the, to my surprise, a week later, subsequently found out that I'd been offered a scholarship to Queen's and that effectively took me out of the state school system. And that that was the first step. So I, I went from the state primary schools into a, the sort of private school system at Queen's College on the scholarship. I then studied there and over time at Queen's when I went to sort of GCC level, um, sort of my academic abilities kind of became very, very clear and particularly around science, uh, science and maths. And Queen's, you know, for all their kind of capabilities, was not a very strong school if I was going to stay on and do A-levels. So again, I started looking at where's the next step. And um, I did a little bit of reading around and I, I saw that Westminster School at the time had just opened some state-of-the-art science building and laboratory. Um, I knew a few of the kind of Westminster School boys just from, you know, going out socially and, uh, you know, they seem to be kind of a fairly lively bunch. I think that'd be the um, safest way to describe it. But were you lively? Were you lively at that time? I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to give dispersions to other people. Were you lively at that stage? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, to, to, to run into it, I think my, my biggest asset was in my early years was being kind of gifted academically. So. The, the benefits of that is clearly it gave me the opportunities you know, I did get, you know, whether it's going to Queen's and then subsequently doing the entrance exam for Westminster, getting into Westminster and doing effectively physics, chemistry, double maths for A-level. So that, that's what my academic kind of ability gave me. And the, the, the downside of that, and I'll be, you know, again, I said to you, I'll be honest on this podcast. I don't want to give sort of a, you know, a rose tinted view of my progression the downside of that is I feel that it, it made me sort of wing things for quite a long time because I could get away with not having to work particularly hard to achieve very, very, very strong results, particularly in those areas. So like I mentioned, you know, yeah, I mean, I met the Westminster lad socially. You know, there was a loads of us. When you're a teenager, you always like to socialise. And it didn't seem to kind of um, hamper my academic progress. So there was no issue to that. But as you get older... And as I sort of left university and went into the world of work, you know, there was a bit of a rude awakening um, around sort of, you know, it's all very well having the ability, but you need to be able to match that with a kind of a level of application and a level of preparation. Well, well, this um, this lack of effort clearly got you, you know, I think you've 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 skipped over so much in terms of. Lindy not trying very hard. She was able to go um, to Cambridge and, and read chemical engineering and biotechnology. During that time, she uh, got half blue in rugby, then came captain in 1995, 1996, and was a member of the college first boat team. So, so again, for someone who's coasted for a, a few years at uh, university, you achieved an awful lot. Now, now, given the, the degree that you, you, you graduated with, given your passion for math and science, why the British Army? Was that just an epiphany when you woke up and thought, right, I've graduated, I'm going to go talk, talk my viewers and listeners through this, please. So, so essentially, when I, um, when, I, when I finished at Westminster, I actually got a, another scholarship. I got a pre-university scholarship with ICI who at the time were one of the biggest um, chemical companies in the world. 
And that effectively meant that they paid any tuition fees and a few other bits and pieces for me to do chemical engineering at Cambridge University. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think initially the plan, that was the grand plan. I was, I, well, the, the grand plan for my mother was for me to become a doctor. Um, so clearly she was absolutely devastated. <laughs> she was devastated when I decided I was going to become a chemical engineer instead. And, um, and, and again, it does touch back to things because I looked at the doctor profession and the role and I could see it was like a vocation. You know, it, it was like all encompassing. And I think that was one of the things that actually put me off, you know, going back to this thing about winging it a little bit. I just thought, look, you know, the science and everything is great. I've obviously got the foundations, but I don't think I want to be a doctor. I don't think I want to do that sort of all encompassing role. So I went down the chemical engineering route. I basically worked in my um, holidays for ICI. I did a year before I went up to Cambridge, up in the northwest in Runcorn, doing various projects there. And went to university kind of pretty much set in terms of what I was going to do when I graduated. But, you know, I think university in particular, because it's the first time you're away from home. I think that's the time when a lot of people kind of assess what they really want out of life and, um, you know, the direction they're going. And it became pretty clear to me that whilst, like I said, you know, I've got all of these sort of problem solving academic kind of abilities around science and maths, etc., that I wasn't someone who wanted to maybe work in a, a job that involved, you know, sitting there working out equations or doing engineering problems. I got much more out of being with people, interacting with people. That's where all the sport aspect came into it, right? The, what I loved about sport was being in a team. What I found about being in, you know, a team as well and eventually being a captain is about leading teams, about how to how to get high performance out of teams, how to get everyone putting together, you know, for one goal and working together. And, that, you know, some of that stuff I found really rewarding. And fundamentally, you know, when I did that sort of reassessment, I realised that really what I think I had was the passion about sort of leadership, about working with people, getting the best out of people, getting the best out of myself and achieving, um, achieving things together. So that made me kind of look around and see what would really kind of work for me uh, in that aspect. And also the fact that, to be honest, I didn't want to do a desk job at the age of 21, 22, coming out of university. You know, to me, that seemed like the, <laughs> that was the definition of death for me at the time. So, you know, the, the army just sort of, sort of slotted very nicely into that. The other thing as well is that because I'd been so active sports-wise and really wanted to be able to keep up a big aspects of that there wasn't that there's not that many jobs or there weren't that many jobs that you could do and be able to combine a reasonable level of playing sports so again for that reason you know it's it, it, it was a little bit of a you know I talk about my mum not being happy I mean probably about the only time I ever saw my mum cry was when I told her I was I basically just signed up for the army and I was going to Sandhurst that was not <laughs> that was not a good moment for my mum at the time but um that's, that's, that's what basically took me to the army. Well, I'm sure there's many um, African and Southern Asian and even Asian people listening to, to this podcast who can definitely empathise how that call went when they've had to disappoint their, their parents. So you spent, and again, this is not as though that you decided to be a TA. Um, and again, I've got lots of respect for people in the Territory Army. You, you went to Royal Sandhurst, you graduated, you spent four years in the army, um, and ended up a, as an officer. So when did that reassessment, because it seems as though that you are always reevaluating from the age of 11 to 16 to 18, you'll you're constantly do this over the, a period of your career from what I've seen. So what was that epiphany moment for you when you said, okay, um, I've had a great time in the British Army, I want to do work in financial services, not just within financial services, I want to be a credit trader. Talk, talk me through that process and also what that phone call was like to your mum when you told her. Yeah, I, I think actually, you know, I, I think I can actually put some logic to my career progression when I actually just admit that really fundamentally, you know, the early part of my career, like I said, was involved a little bit of winging it and a little bit also of trying to keep clearly my parents happy or my mother happy and stuff like that. So. 
what I mean by that is, yeah, doing doing sciences, doing, you know, doing nice A-levels. That's exactly what my family wanted. Going, um, okay, going into the army wasn't necessarily what my um, mother wanted, but at the end of the day, it was, you know, as an officer, it was an engineering. It, I was a Royal Engineer, so it was an engineering um, part of the army. You know, there was still kind of a thread there that would make mum happy. I've always, I'd always, always, always from the beginning wanted to work in sport, but I was too much of a chicken really at that stage. And when you looked back in, you know, the 90s, the sports industry over here was, you know, it, it was embryonic really. There was very, very few areas I think you could go into and you could genuinely make a kind of a, a solid career out of. So I, I sort of, sport was that thing in the distance that I wanted to get into at some point. And I think a lot of people have that, you know, they have something that they want to do at some point, but it's kind of something that's fixed in the future, but not, you know, not clear exactly when. And the army I knew was, as soon as I went into it was a little bit of a, a holding period for me in the sense that I knew from the beginning that I didn't want to be a career officer. I was not going to work as an officer till the age of 55 and retire and be one of those sort of colonels at the golf club boring everyone with tales of you know what they did in various parts of the world but I also knew that it would be a really really great um, experience and grounding for me in terms of taking that next sort of transition or step in my career so when I when I was kind of approaching that sort of end period of the military because to be honest if I wasn't going to pursue the military as a career then really the amount of your career in the military shouldn't be more than about three to seven years maximum. And I was in for five. Anything longer than that, then you're kind of starting to get a bit old to go into other industries. So I, I left after five years. And then as I was approaching the end, it was about, it was the early 2000s. And I remember there was like a recession. So I think it was the dot-com bubble had crashed. So there was, there was a recession. Um, there wasn't really a lot out there. Um, the typical kind of, sort of exiting army officer roles are operations type roles banks used to love to hoover up army officers in operation roles and actually one of my really good friends I went through Sanders with she started off at Nomura in operations at the same time I started at JP Morgan so I, I basically just followed that sort of path or that warm path where I was getting myself in front of banks for operations type roles and um, I, I sat one day in front of um, someone at the time called Anthony Best, who was head of sales for JP Morgan. He had some military background. He was on the list, which is this big kind of career network for, for ex-officers, basically. So Tony Best at the time was on the list as a JP Morgan representative for like military people. So I got in front of him and it, essentially I was just really talking to him, uh, looking for advice about how I could get into financial services you know, operations is what I assumed would be the thing. And after about sort of 10, 15 minutes of having a chat with Tony, he actually was the one who said to me, have you ever thought about trading? And it was nothing, It was something that never even crossed my mind um, that I'd want to do. And I think the first thing I said to him was, um, isn't that a little bit Essex boy? Because I think really at the time, you know, everyone's impression of trading was things like Nick Leeson and Essex boys and loads of money and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, and, you know, off the back of that initial chat, he, he literally then brought in, at the time, uh, one of the heads of trading for the credit desk, a guy called Tim Frost, who, again, is um, pretty well known in the sort of credit markets. And essentially, things just sort of spiralled from there. You know, I was, I, I, I was there for, I started there ostensibly for kind of a 30-minute chat with coffee with Tony, just about kind of how to get into financial services. And it sort of evolved into three, four hours at the offices, getting put in front of, you know, Tim Frost, getting put in front of other traders on the desk. And at the end of the uh, sort of afternoon, um, Tim Frost came back and just said, well, I've got a space on the trading desk. You know, it's yours if you want it. You know, you're going to be starting from the beginning again, but, you know, it's a good opportunity. So um, I kind of decided it was a good thing to take. <laughs> so I said yes. And um yeah, it's funny at the time is that my mother at the time, she had a partner who um, was a was a banker, but he wasn't an investment banker. He was a you know high street banker, bank manager, I should say. And uh, so I said to my mum, yeah, going back to the, the new conversation. So I said to my mum, OK, look, I'm leaving the army. I've got a job at JP Morgan. It's, um, I'm going to be joining a trading desk. And my mum was like, oh, OK, you know, not, not, not bothered. Basically didn't know what that meant, really. 
just believed that I was leaving the military. And um, I was going to say that's impressive compared to her reaction to, you know, what, you know, you going into the army. So that's upside there. Yeah. And then her partner, who obviously kind of knew a bit about banking, said, wow, that's incredible. That's such an amazing, you know, he, he was like doing cartwheels about it. And one, as soon as my mum saw his reaction, then she was like, oh, fantastic. And then she really kind of got into it. Uh, Lindy, I, I don't want to uh, sort of cut you off here, but I'm, I'm just cognizant of time. But I think what's what's interesting for me is, you know, to our listeners and a large portion of our listeners um, come from financial markets or have desires to work in the markets. Every part of, you know, your academic background is elite, you know, and, and you're super humble. But again, even how you got into JP Morgan um, you know, having that interpersonal skills. Again, being an engineer, you've got that structure. I can understand why people will think that you could be right for operations. But, you know, you, you spent almost seven years at JP Morgan, um, two and a half at um, Barclays, and, and then your final tenure, three years at, at Credit Suisse. So total, you know, over a, a decade spent in financial um, markets, and you and you left potentially at the not the height of your earnings, but you could have earned a lot more if you stayed on the desk and kept trading. Now you mentioned earlier that even with sports, when you left and were thinking about going into the market, you felt that it wasn't quite ready for for you to to go into a sports career in the nineties. And then even when you went into financial services, was the sports piece always on the back of your mind? you know, 12 years in the industry that you felt, look, now's the time that I, I need to sort of step away and chase chase my passion? Yeah, 100%. I, literally, I, I've always had that little nagging thing in my head about how can I get into sports? How can I get into sports? Like sports has really been like the, the soundtrack, everything, the backdrop to my life from a very young age all the way through to till now. And it got to the point where, you know, being in the financial services is, is comfortable, as you know, like you say, you know, you can earn a lot of money. And the, the thing that means is that also it can be a little bit of a trap. It's like kind of velvet handcuffs because, you know, if you get used to that level of earnings, then there's very, very few avenues you can go into subsequently that are not you know going to be able to kind of match those earnings. So I was well aware of that sort of bit of a trap. Um, and I always tell myself, you know, look, you know, if, if I find the right opportunity or the right moment, then maybe you're just going to have to take, you know, a cut, as we say in the trading world, take a cut to kind of go into something that you really want to do. And that was really what it was about, was just sort of working out when was the right time to take the cut. And if, if I'm being honest, it was, I probably ended up doing it a little bit later than maybe I would have wanted because, you know, we had the, the little matter of 2008 to deal with. So when I when I got into when I got entered the the business, it was two thousand. It was late two thousand and one. So so essentially, I'd sort of five six years in, and I was really starting to get onto that rung of being a relatively senior trader. Had my own sector to trade, and you know I that's when I made the move from J P Morgan to Barclays. And that that move initially was was a great move. You know, it was exactly kind of put me on track to like you say and make those big earnings. But then. 2008 happened. Um, clearly, that was a period of massive uncertainty, not just in banking, but in the whole kind of world economy. So that hand kind of made me have to sit tight for a little bit longer because the plan was really to probably do a couple of years at Barclays and then knock it on the head, 2010, uh, basically start my own sports management business. So I kind of held that a little bit longer to 2013, did a, did a few years at Credit Suisse. I'm sure they won't appreciate me saying that, but the last few years was a few holdout years. Um, but what I did do in that time was it gave me a clear idea of kind of what I wanted to do in the sports business. Now, I'd always known that probably sports management was the area. As I've touched on before, I think the areas, you know, around leadership, around mentoring, around developing relationships, as well as kind of commercially developing deals and transactions I think I had all those pieces and I think working in sports management was the the obvious place to do it but what I was trying to figure out was whether it would be something that I would try and go into another corporate type environment you know like a franchise agency work my way up and then go out on my own or start something from the ground up and I decided the latter for lots of reasons but I think the main reason is because you know what I've realized about myself is that 
you know, at the end of the day, there's there's a, a lot of self-reliance that I have. There's a lot about being in an organisation where I felt I always had to make compromises being in that corporate environment, maybe, you know, having to ha- put the company face on. And I kind of wanted to actually, you know, have a blank piece of paper and actually start a business made in my own image. And, you know, I guess it takes a certain amount of ego to do that. But I, I didn't really see it as ego. I just felt that I was just tired of being in an environment where I wasn't able to be my completely authentic self. So I basically used the time as I was sort of going towards the end of my kind of career in the city, and that was with Credit Suisse, just to really map out what I wanted CC Sports Management to be. And yeah, I used some of the cash that I'd accumulated over that training career to then have the ability to be able to start my own sports management company. And I know that not everyone has that luxury, but that's the one thing that obviously working in a lucrative business like financial services, that's the one thing that it did give me the ability to do. Thank you. That's super powerful. I would like to understand and love you to be able to share percentage terms, because again, you've beautifully articulated that 13-year financial services career. Um, It is very lucrative, but you had a goal and you decided to to, to stay in the industry a little bit longer to be able to create a buffer. But talk to me about the first couple of years because you took a cut. So from a percentage standpoint, did you earn any money the first couple of years? No. I mean, in terms of profit, no, because, you know, I went from basically earning clearly comfortable six figures x times to basically looking at and thinking okay i have to build a i have to build a platform i have to build a model right so you know so first of all as sisu i had to get that network and there's various ways to do it i mean you know you see a lot of ex players a lot of coaches are football agents because clearly to be effective in your role you need a network you need the access to talent and then you also need the ability to understand the markets you work in so for the network side of life, I actually spent the first couple of years doing a lot of work as, as a scout, working for a company called the Scouting Network. And what they did is they worked with a lot of clubs in the English League over here um, to help them to scout talents. So I'd get sent really on a sort of two or three times a week to matches, to write reports on players, write reports on teams. And what it did is, A, it got me out and about, got my face out and about, it helped to give me that understanding of the game and what makes good players, what makes players fit into teams. But the key thing as well is it plugged me into that network. But earnings-wise, that's not going to make you anywhere near the sort of money that I was earning in the city. And that's a calculated cut I took. So I decided, right, the first two, three years, I'd have to use that as an investment in myself to grow my network in order to be able to be effective um, in what I wanted to do with the football side of life. But like all of these things, you know, it's like people like founders of startups in tech. I mean, now they're getting so much money thrown at them VC-wise, they can probably pay themselves a hefty salary. But, you know, in the old days as a founder, you know, you took that cut. But the idea is that at X point in the future, it's going to come off because if you can build that business to be successful, then, you know, it's, it is far more lucrative even than sitting on the trading desk for 10x years. And, and Lindy, I, this really resonates for, for me because when I... I... I had a senior role at Odgers Burnson in, in 2010, which is by far one of the most preeminent executive search firms in the United Kingdom. And I wanted to build a, a platform. I wanted to, to, to show up at work and, and be my, my whole self and decided to make a, a move. Now, what I didn't appreciate is that um, I was staying in the same sector. Odgers had a fantastic brand. And I was being paid, you know, a six-figure salary at the time. And it took two or three years of graft, but also having to have humility as well, because I came from a big organization where the fees were huge to having to do smaller work to be able to refine um, my craft and build up a brand and build up a network where people truly trust the work that you do. So, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. Now, we're coming to the end of the podcast, and there's a couple of quick questions I wanted to ask you. you you've spoken so eloquently about your vision, you, you backing yourself, but also you holding yourself accountable each and every day. 
Talk to me about the low points, because I've got no doubt as a, as a founder of a business which has been trading for 12 years, there have been some inescrutably low, low points, and there's been some highs. Can you just share with us one or two of the, the low points and conversely, some of the, the successes that you've had? Yeah, I think, um, and actually, I just wanted to just add to what you said about sort of leaving Odgers and sort of striking out on your own is that 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 was one of the real humbling things to realise is that, you know, they used to say, when I was at JP Morgan, they always used to say there was a value to your seat. And usually I just paid lip service to it. You know, what do you mean there's a value to my seat? Just pay me, whatever. But actually there was a value because just by being, having JP Morgan as your employer, certain people will pick the phone up to you. Certain people will actually talk to you. You know, when I when I became Lindy and Gwenya, CC Sports Management, they were like, who's CC Sports? Who are you? Who's CC Sports Management? Suddenly you realise that maybe some of the status that you thought you had isn't really status. You know, what's real status actually at the end of the day is what you can bring to a particular kind of situation plus that brand. And um, I learned that the hard way. And that that was one of the, that was one of the hard lessons I learned from kind of leaving financial services and starting your own business. But that that's something that, like you say, we've all gone through that journey. So that that kind of fed in a little bit to maybe one of my sort of low points starting up the business was just really, again, putting my trust and putting my sort of energy into a particular venture. It was in Ghana at the time that didn't go to plan. I think, though, you know, one of the things I've always learned is, you know, I'm not worried about taking risks to the extent or going for things, but I've always been wise enough to make sure I'd never take a risk that was too big for me. You know, so I'll always take a calculate risk, but I will never take a risk that's outsize of what I'm capable of. So I went into Ghana and it was, you know, on paper, it was a really, really interesting venture. It was setting up an academy there. It was really fitting into all the bits that I talked about with Sisu, you know, underserved areas. We were going to set up, a, you know, the first sort of boys and girls team. So, again, giving an equal opportunity to both boys and girls to really kind of progress. And at the end of the day, it didn't work out for various reasons. The, the main reason being that the, the business partner involved in it was also involved in other businesses that just ended up kind of taking their attention away. And that was a bit of a hit. That was a financial hit, but that was also kind of a hit because it was going to be a cornerstone in terms of how I was going to break out the agency and the work we were doing in the agency in the first few years. So I had that initial kind of setback and uh, that sort of made me kind of re-examine a few things. But what that really kind of made me focus on again was, you know, like I said, going back to this thing about self-reliance, like what is the things that I could control? ultimately were the the structure of the business, the processes of the business, and ultimately the people that I brought into the business to a large extent, you know, I could try and bring in the best people possible, but there's always going to be that element of uncertainty and you have to live with that in, um, in business. So what kind of really brought me on to the sort of next stage was after that sort of little setback was really relying on people I knew well and trusted in order to make some new inroads. And by doing that, I ended up basically getting referred to um, a good friend of mine and one of my brother's very, very close friends from football. I got referred to a female player in Sweden. She's actually Irish, but at the time she was playing in Sweden. And she was one of my kind of first female professional football clients. Because as I said at the beginning, most of the female players, even even in Sweden, weren't professional. And um her name's Louise Quinn, and I basically she wanted to basically make the move into England because by 2015 the game over here was really starting to you know get some legs, and I remember basically taking her on as a client and effectively moving her to England into a club, Notts County, that subsequently went into liquidation about one week after I put her into that club. So I'd basically taken her from a very very good performing club in Sweden into the English league, and straight away she had no job no salary, nothing. And um, over the space of like a week or two, managed to engineer her a temporary move into Arsenal, who at the time still are one of the best women's teams uh, in the country. And over the course of the next 18 months, Louise established herself in that squad and ended up being part of the team that won the league um, in, I think it was 17, 18. 
So for me, the satisfaction of doing really well for a client and like basically taking a client from, well, somewhere to nowhere, <laughs> but back up again to really the pinnacle of the game is probably one of my most satisfying things because I feel like if you can do something that you know that maybe the client wasn't able to do on their own and you can help them to achieve the the real kind of maximum of their attainment and their dreams, then that's one of the most satisfying things ever. So I still hold that out as um, a really big achievement, even more so than sort of monetary commercial deals, et cetera. That's, that's the one that kind of still gives me the biggest satisfaction. No, that's incredible. And again, that, that shows um, your commitment to your client, but also um, that fiduciary responsibility as a director to, to put them back into um, another organization. I've got one last question for you. And again, I wish I could have two hours with you, Mindy, because this has been a fascinating podcast. Who are and and who have been your role models today? You've mentioned some incredible names from the city. You've mentioned your brother. You've mentioned mum. But who's the sort of standout for you? Are there different role models throughout your career? And if so, can you pick out two and share them with us? Yes, um, I think I was kind of mulling over this question, actually, um, even last night in terms of role models, because I think for me, like, say, when you're younger as a child, maybe, and, you know, the world's in front of you, a role model is maybe someone you aspire to be or whose achievements really kind of have a big impression on you. Whereas now I've got older, for me, you know, maybe a role model is more maybe someone who's doing really well in the industry or someone who I look at who's achieving a lot of success or doing things a bit differently and I kind of want to learn a little bit more about what they do so I mean when I was younger like you know I didn't have a lot of role models for me it was about you know my my parents you know my my mother in particular and was such a strong influence and I said to you before you know having seen that happen at an early stage obviously with my father departing and the effect it had on her I think it, it did make me sort of detach a little bit in terms of I wasn't I I sort of went into myself a little bit in the sense like, you know, I am going to make this happen for me. And it was almost a case of, you know, I didn't really look outside and see, oh, who's doing well? I want to do what they're doing. It's always been for me about what I can kind of forge in my own career. And I guess what that did for me is it it maybe didn't limit me too much because, you know, this this aspect of a lot of people say, you know, that people need role models and visibility in order to go into things. You know, we need more representation in various industries. Um, because you know people need role models to aspire to I think that the benefit of not really having so many role models when I was younger is that I was able to go into these things like the army into the city without any really giving it a second thought because I didn't think to myself the whole time oh there are people in these positions who are like me so I think that gave me you know that was a benefit for me but as I've grown older there's I've sort of like you say, you know, you, you get more reflective as you get older and you, you need to understand how to do things better and be better. And, you know, there's there's people I look back at now that I, I really admire um, some of the stuff that they've done. If I look at particularly kind of women's sport and really one of the early advocates ever for women's sport was Billie Jean King. What she did, you know, with tennis uh, in terms of helping to develop the women's game there, in terms of bringing it into the sort of open area, having to deal with, you know, the sort of sexism, like, you know, there's the battle of the sexes match she had. But the amount of the, the amount of energy she put into not just being an amazing tennis player, but a a real advocate for bringing other women along the journey is is something that I really admire. And even now I look at CC, you know, when I started it, I've always wanted to work in underserved areas and that's how I positioned the business. But I've realized obviously over the years that it's also important to really shine a light on you know sort of issues of women's sport and really trying to achieve some gender equality not just in sport and in other areas so I feel like it's important to use the platform as well that I have and the company has to really start to shine a light on that and help others who may be on a similar journey to to be encouraged or see that there is definitely you know routes to success and then at the moment now I mean I think Marcus Rashford I know it's like oh yeah everyone says Marcus Rashford but what what I think he did was so special is that, you know, I think most sports people are very single-minded and a lot of people, sports people are admired because of what they actually just do as a day job, really. That's what they do. They play sport, right? You, you get an MBE, you get an OBE for being good at sport. But Marcus Rashford's done something beyond that, you know, and 
that's something I think that is just really, really powerful, you know, with his, you know, school dinners initiative. So I, I think he's just an admirable young man, all oh, young man, because it makes me sound really old, but um, I do, I think is what he's done is absolutely incredible. And he's shown, I think, a lot of sports people that they can do more. You know, there is the, you know, there is a means to do it. And I, I think on that point, um, there are more professional athletes becoming more vocal. Um, another one I'll put in that bucket is someone called Tyrone Mings, who is the Aston Villa and England centre-back. Um, he was at Ipswich Town when he first joined and he went to a homeless shelter on Christmas Day. Um, and I think he's done that over the last 10 years. He, he's philanthropic, he's got a charity. So I think it's, it's one where it needs to be highlighted a little bit more because I think certainly with footballers and some sportsmen they are and women are are put in a certain light but there's so much more on that note um and, and my producer's looking at me she said no Michael please we can keep going for another hour but I think we might have to do a part two with you Lindy but um in terms of our listeners they're going to want to connect with you so can you please give me your website so how they can monitor your progress your instagram yeah absolutely so my website is www.ccsportsmanagement.com so pretty straightforward cc sports management on instagram ccsm on twitter or if you want to just connect with me directly it's just lindy but with an i l i n d i at ccsportsmanagement.com send me emails i i'm more than happy as I, as i mentioned to you already you know i've got enough hours in the day to um sort of connect with people I think who want to help to progress this amazing sport. Well, this brings to the end of our progression puzzle um, podcast today. I would love to thank Lindy, the founder of Sisu Sports Management, former officer, former investment banker um, and academic for being part of this um, podcast today. I have thoroughly enjoyed today's session. Um, you'll be able to download this podcast on Spotify. So please make sure you, you like the tag and follow us moving forward. Lindy, once again, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to being with our listeners next time round. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Progression Puzzle, brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. If you enjoyed this episode, which I truly hope you have, please be sure to subscribe like and leave a review every time you do it helps others find the show for more information on how barrington hibberts can help you to maximize the power of difference head over to www.barringtonhibbert.com join us next time for more pieces of the progression puzzle